set the expectation this morning. So this, this week was a pretty big one for our family. We had a couple of monumental events take place. Thursday, my wife and I celebrated our 10-year wedding anniversary, which is uh, significant, definitely something to um, marvel at in terms of God's grace. Saturday, our daughter's third birthday, and so we've, we've had a lot of celebration, joy, gratitude infused into our week. Thursday, the same day that the 10-year anniversary happened, was also the day that my laptop decided to crash on me with about 90% of this week's sermon notes connected to that laptop, which then had to be taken in for repairs. And so you can imagine, you know, the day of your 10-year anniversary, you're hoping to kind of smoothly coast toward the evening and go out on a, an enjoyable date with your spouse. And somewhere along the way that day, uh, my computer decided to die on me, and it was a recreating of all of these sermon notes by memory throughout the course of Thursday without much time to spare over the course of the weekend to try to pick up the pieces. And so you might think, well, he must be panicked right now. What is he going to talk about? And the reality is I'm not. I'm strangely at peace because here's what I've noticed about the way the Lord works. Every one of those Sundays that I find myself coming in feeling weaker than usual or thinking to myself, this will be the dud in this sermon series that everyone will go, yeah, okay, been there, done that, heard that one, or that wasn't um, as eloquent as it could have been. Those are always the Sundays that afterwards one or multiple people find their way to me to tell me that really had impact on my life. And my response is, are you serious? Like, are you kidding me right now? Um, which is just God's way of flexing in the midst of weakness to show himself strong. And so I trust he'll do that this morning. Let me, let me pray for that. Let me pray for me and pray for you all. Pray for the spirit to move and then we'll jump in and get going. God, you are strong. You are all powerful. You are all mighty. Capable of moving in the midst of Great displays of human weakness. It's your way of flexing, of revealing to us just who you are and just how mighty and powerful you are. And so I pray that you would do that this morning. I pray that you would flex. I pray that we would be amazed at how incredible you are and how glorious your word is. At how magnificent the cross of Jesus Christ is and all of its beautiful facets including the one that we will look at this morning. I pray that we would, for those of us who come in not knowing, not following you, Jesus, that we would be compelled to turn to you. Uh, that those of us who do profess to know and love and follow you, Jesus, that uh, we would be reminded that a reset button would be hit in terms of, Father, how you view us, how you feel about us, and that that would have drastic implications and significance for the way we relate to other people. Uh, those among the household of faith and those who are not yet yours, your followers. God, that, um, that you would move and work by the power of your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we're desperate for you this morning. We need you to open our eyes to see. We need you to open our ears to hear. We need you to open our hearts to receive that which you have for us. Would you move mightily in power this morning? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So I alluded to it in the prayer that I just prayed. 
We are currently in the, the heart of a sermon series that's going to carry us throughout the entire summer, a series entitled Cruciform. That word simply means having the shape of a cross. As you've likely heard me say on a number of occasions, the cross is the great jewel of the Christian faith. It's multifaceted. As you spin a jewel, it radiates with new brilliance and beauty. And so the goal of this series is incredibly simple. It's to spin the jewel It's to see the radiance and beauty of that which Jesus has accomplished for us one facet at a time. And that's what we've been doing now for roughly a little over a month. We decided on this sermon series title, Cruciform, Shaped by the Cross, because we believe that if we grab hold of of what this series is meant to communicate, we're going to find our lives shaped by the cross in a number of ways. Doctrinally, as we grow in our understanding of the various facets of the cross themselves, Personally, as we grow in an understanding of how these facets of the cross matter in our own lives, communally, as we grow in our understanding of how these facets of the cross matter in our relationships with other Christ followers, and missionally, as we grow in our understanding of how these facets of the cross matter in our efforts to point more and more people to Jesus. And so you've probably seen that train of thought in each and every sermon as we've worked our way up to this point in this series. With that being said, if you have a Bible, you can open up to Romans chapter 5, verses 9 through 11. We'll spend a fair amount of our time there this morning. We'll touch on a few different passages of Scripture as we go along, as we have throughout this series, week in and week out. But we'll begin with Romans 5. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Uh, If you don't own a Bible or the translation that you brought in with you is a little difficult to track with, then please take that. Bible as our gift to you. As you're turning to this morning's passage, let me just recap a little bit. As it stands, we have currently taken a look at four of the the many facets of the cross that we're going to look at throughout the course of this summer. In week one, we looked at the beautiful facet of justification, the significance of Jesus having satisfied the legal demands of our sin, having taken our guilty record upon himself and gifting us his perfect righteous record by grace through faith, so that God the Father declares us righteous in his sight. That was week one. In week two, we looked at the beautiful facet of propitiation. It's just a big word that that means that Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. He drank the cup of God's wrath down to the dregs, and in doing so, has changed God's wrath toward us into favor. In week three, we looked at the beautiful facet of expiation, the significance of Jesus having cleansed us from the stain of sin on our soul, including the shame and defilement associated with the sins that you and I have committed, as well as the sins that have been committed against us, that in Christ, both our sin and our shame have been taken away forever. Last week, we looked at the beautiful facet of the cross known as redemption, the significance of Jesus having freed us from the shackles of sin. He entered into the the marketplace of sin and purchased us off of the auction block at great cost to himself, namely by way of his shed blood, motivated by his undying love for you and me. He's the great liberator who sets the captives free. This morning, we're going to spin the jewel yet again, and we're going to take a look at the beautiful facet of the cross known as reconciliation. Like those other facets of the cross that you and I have looked at thus far, just by being a part of this church, you're surrounded constantly by this doctrine. We sing it all the time in this place. Lyrics like, while we were weak, he died, making us reconciled to God for all eternal days. Or bringing reconciliation to a world that longs to know the affections of a father who will never let them go. 
or, and we'll sing this momentarily as the church, maybe my favorite, and sin and death no longer reign, nor day to dark declines, for from the Father's face a light of reconcilement shines. It's a beautiful picture of the doctrine of reconciliation. Every one of those songs is a declaration of that beautiful facet of the cross. And so as we've asked every week, what does that word mean? What is reconciliation? Well, very simply put, reconciliation means to restore a friendship. It means to replace hostility with peace. In a world filled with estranged spouses, quarreling family members, even warring nations, the concept of reconciliation is pretty familiar to us for the most part. It implies an original friendship followed by an obstacle creating hostility in the relationship followed by an overcoming of that obstacle uh, in order that the friendship might be restored. And so you, you think in that terminology, friendship, obstacle creating enmity, and then a restored friendship. The original friendship aspect makes sense to to many of us as we consider the story of creation, right? The relationship between God and our first parents in the garden wasn't one of hostility. There was perfect harmony between God and man in the beginning. But as we read in Genesis 3 and on throughout the scriptures, that perfect harmony was disrupted. It was, it was ruined, in fact, when our first parents sinned against God. That as a result of sin, God's image bearers became his enemies. Which is why Paul would say in Romans 5, beginning in verse 9, since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, Jesus' blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, there it is, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Some people take that phrase that Paul uses there, while we were enemies, and they use that phrase to argue that, that we are enemies of God by way of our sin, but God is not our enemy. That we have hostility toward him, but he doesn't necessarily have hostility toward us. The Bible certainly makes clear that sinful man is hostile to God. Make no mistake about that. Colossians 1.21 says, And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Paul says, Elsewhere in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 7, he says it this way. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That, that as a result of sin, man is hostile toward God intellectually, emotionally, volitionally, spiritually, etc., etc., etc. But the, the problem with that that one-sided view of reconciliation is that it just doesn't jive with the way the New Testament writers talk about reconciliation elsewhere. Very famous passage of scripture, Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, Jesus says, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. No, notice that in Jesus' example, it's not you who has something against your brother. Rather, it's your brother who has something against you. That the enmity, the hostility is toward you. The need to be reconciled has to do with the fact that your brother has a grievance against you. 
In the same way, it's not only that we as rebellious sinners are hostile toward God, it's that God has hostility toward us, which is really hard for us to wrap our minds around with this idea that God is love. I don't really have time to go there this morning. I would direct you if, if there's a struggle to understand how God could exhibit hostility toward his, uh, th- those created in his image, to go back a few weeks to the week we talked about propitiation where I attempted to tie in the holiness of God and the love of God and make sense of how those two cannot be divorced from one another. But biblically speaking, the reality is it's not just that we have hostility toward God. It's that by way of our sin, God has hostility toward us. And, and really, you don't even have to leave Romans 5 to see it. Verse 9 talks about us being saved from the wrath of God. God's wrath is upon sinners because sinners are his enemies. Donald McLeod in his book, Christ Crucified, he says it this way. He says, Eden was the place where God walked, where humans lived in harmony with their maker, with each other, and with their environment, and where eternal life was within their grasp. Now their situation has changed irrevocably. Eden is behind them, and at the gate stands a flaming sword. The divine holiness, the flaming anger of God, now stands between mankind and paradise. Humanly speaking, the way back to eternal life is closed. And listen to this. And closed not by mankind's no to God, but by God's no to mankind. Anyone who dares to go back must reckon with the flaming holiness of offended deity. That reconciliation is, when we talk about that doctrine, it's not the changing of our attitude toward God. Reconciliation is God overcoming the hostility that he has toward us as rebellious sinners. Leon Morris, in his book, The Atonement, he says it this way. He says, Clearly it is God's demand that we live holy lives that is the root cause of the problem. As long as he is angry with the selfishness, the disregard of the needs of others, and the general attitude of lovelessness that the Bible calls sin, the attitude of God is going to be an important factor, indeed the important factor. We cannot get a glimmering of an understanding of what the New Testament understands by Christ's atoning work unless we see that God is hostile to every evil thing and every evil person. If men are to be forgiven, something must be done about this hostility. There can be no fellowship between God and man as long as God is persisting in a demand to which men are indifferent. That is simply to perpetuate the enmity, the hostility. In other words... Reconciliation doesn't ultimately have to do with our hostility toward God. It ultimately has to do with God's hostility toward us as rebellious sinners. And what that means is that we can't just change our attitude toward God and call ourselves reconciled with him. God's disposition toward us must change. And we can't change his disposition toward us by way of our own efforts. As we've talked about week in and week out in this series, if, if my neighbor which I I have neighbors that this is true of, if my neighbor has a problem with me because I'm not keeping up with the standard of expectation in terms of lawn care, I can break out the lawnmower, I can break out the weed eater, I can break out the clippers, the trimmers, I can remove the hostility, and I can reconcile that relationship. It's fairly easy to do. The problem with hostility that God has toward us is that we cannot remove the cause. The cause of the hostility that God has toward us is sin. And we cannot just do away with it. We can't make our sin go away. 
Reconciliation, it's one of those facets of the cross that is not unique in the sense that it must be of divine initiative. And the Bible declares to us that it is. Reconciliation is God's doing. It's the Father's doing by the death of his Son, which is why Paul would use this language in Romans 5, verse 10. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son. Notice what Paul says there. He says we were reconciled. That's a past tense Greek verb, and it's rooted in a past tense historical event, namely the death of the Son. Paul says it this way in Romans 1. Verse 21, and you who were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. See what Paul says there? Reconciled in his body of flesh, reconciled by his death. That's a a work of reconciliation that happened 2,000 years ago on a Roman splintered wooden cross. That when Jesus said, it is finished, This is one of those declarative uh, undergirdings of that statement. Under the banner of it is finished, our reconciliation has been accomplished. It's a past tense work of God in overcoming his hostility toward his rebellious enemies. And the overcoming of that hostility is by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. To quote Donald McLeod again, he says this, This was the great reconciling moment. Not our change of heart and attitude, but Calvary. Christ made peace by the blood of his cross. That the ultimate work of reconciliation, just to to be as crystal clear as I can be, is not us reconciling ourselves to God. It's God reconciling himself to us. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. He says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the new, uh, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Listen to this. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. John Piper says it this way. He says, God accomplished reconciliation. That is, God provided the foundation of reconciliation. He purchased the privilege of reconciliation outside of us. Before we were on the scene or had done anything to help, the decisive work of reconciling was done. When, there's, uh, when there is sin, there must be punishment. Where we have belittled the glory of God, it must be vindicated. And the belittling of God shown to be as horrible as it really is. That is what the death of Christ did. And he did it without our help or partnership. Or to quote Leon Morris again, It is what Christ has done, not what man does in changing his attitudes that brings about reconciliation. Christ has a greater part in the Christian way than merely to point out to men that they have some wrong idea about God. He is at the very center of Christianity and his death on the cross is the heart of it all. That that if we could come back and use that imagery of the garden in Genesis chapters 1 through 3, it's Jesus who came under the flaming sword of God's judgment, opening the way back to paradise and ultimately restoring a harmonious relationship with God where we were once at enmity and hostility with him as his enemies. That the record of debt that stood against us, making us enemies of God, was nailed to the cross of Jesus Christ. And the record of righteousness gifted us in Christ establishes us as friends of God. And so let let me just say this. If you're not a Christian, hear me loud and clear, and I hope this brings a great weight upon your heart and your soul as you hear me say it. If you're not a Christian, according to the scriptures, you are an enemy of God. 
And the devastating news is that you cannot do anything to reconcile yourself to him. There's no change of attitude. There's no change of disposition toward God that will remove the enmity between you and God. Paul says this, uh, coming back to Romans 5, verse 11. He says, more than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That reconciliation cannot be earned Reconciliation cannot be worked for. Reconciliation cannot be suffered for. You can't scourge yourself enough to be reconciled to God. All we can do is receive it. It's a gift. And so if you're not a Christian, and and this includes the cultural Christians in the room who perceive themselves and have for a long time to be friends of God, but who have truly not been reconciled by way of the cross of Jesus Christ, but have just been checking boxes for years, to all who are not reconciled to Jesus I would invite you to come with nothing more than your sin in the empty hands of faith this morning and to receive the gift of reconciliation secured by the blood of Jesus Christ to go from an enemy of God to a friend of God. And if you are a Christian, and we forget this so easily, those of us who follow Jesus, those of us who have been reconciled to God by the blood of Christ, we need not fear God's wrath. Again, Romans 5 verse 9. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. That, hear me when I say this. If you're in Christ, when you meet your maker, you will not meet an enemy, but a friend. Do you believe that? That the hostility that once existed between you and God is no longer. It's done with. It was done away with through the cross of Jesus Christ. That where there was once hostility, there is now peace. Paul says it this way in Colossians 1 verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And unless we think that Paul's talking about some cosmic level peace that has nothing to do with us, The very next sentence out of Paul's mouth in Colossians 1 is is the phrase that we read just a moment ago. Colossians 1, verse 21, and you, that's personal, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. That by the shed blood of Jesus, God has overcome his hostility toward rebellious sinners like you and me. He, He no longer sees those who are in Christ as enemies, but as friends. This facet of the cross known as reconciliation is deeply personal. When you go back to the doctrine of justification, one of the first facets we looked at, there are some legal ramifications there, but it lacks some of the personal nature that a doctrine like the one we're looking at this morning holds. The the doctrine of reconciliation is deeply personal. It's not just some generalized gift of reconciliation that we've been given. It's a person to whom we've been reconciled. One way we could say it, reconciliation is not just about being at peace with God. It's about knowing the God of peace. In other words, the gift of reconciliation is God offering us God which helps to make sense of why this facet of the cross has more explicit horizontal implications than maybe the ones that we've looked at up to this point in this series. That going back to the garden, our first parents established themselves as enemies of of God. There was a, a vertical hostility, a vertical enmity, 
And, and almost immediately, we see hostility among image bearers, do we not? You just skip to the very next chapter of the Bible, and you see the very first murder in human history. That if vertical hostility with God would lead to horizontal hostility between human beings, then it makes a lot of sense that vertical reconciliation with God would lead to a horizontal ministry of reconciliation, which is exactly what the, the Apostle Paul describes in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where he says, beginning in verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. And listen to this, gave us the gift, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That, that we have a message to champion to the world, those of us who are in Christ, to offer the peace of God that can only be known by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ alone. In other words, we have a peace treaty that we can offer those who are not in Christ. And so we see that there's a, a proclamation to be made with our lips as it pertains to this ministry of reconciliation. But the fascinating thing about this particular facet of the cross is that it's not just our lips, but our very lives that give evidence to its beauty as well, which is why the Apostle Paul is so passionate about reconciliation among image bearers. That by the cross of Jesus Christ, God not only breaks down the, the dividing wall of hostility between man and God, he breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between man and man. One of the great passages in the Bible that addresses this idea of reconciliation between image bearers is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. I'll put part of it up on the screen, but I'm going to read that entire passage because of its significance. Paul says this beginning in verse 11. He says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, okay, so he's talking to Gentiles as a redeemed Jewish man. You Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But, and this is up on the screen, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of the cross, by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross." thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. And Paul goes on to say in Ephesians 2, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 
you don't have to read too deep in the scriptures to know that there was such tension between Jew and Gentile that the unity of the early church was threatened. A product of, of the first Adam's transgression in the garden. Hostility uh, among image bearers. The, the category of otherness, you might say. The, the definition, even if you just look up, and you can do this, pull up Webster's Dictionary, type in Google Gentile definition, and you will literally see the words not Jewish. That's what Gentile means. It means anything other than Jewish. It's an otherness kind of a term. To a Jew, Gentiles were considered inferior. They were considered ritually unclean. They were considered social outcasts. The beauty of the gospel is that in Christ, the greater Adam, the last Adam, the dividing wall of hostility came down. God's love embraced both Jew and Gentile. Christ's blood was shed for both Jew and Gentile. Approachability of God was obtained for both Jew and Gentile. To quote Leon Morris one last time, he says this, Christ's death enabled both Jews and Gentiles to draw near to God, and as they did so, they drew near to each other. It's kind of like that thing that happens in marriage. You grow in intimacy with Jesus, your spouse does too, and you grow in intimacy with each other. He says, reconciliation with God means also reconciliation with man as Jesus himself taught. It is impossible to enter into the reconciliation that Christ died to accomplish and at the same time to nourish grudges against other people. That in some sense, this facet of the cross offers a very unique heart diagnostic. That if we nourish grudges against other people, if we hold hatred in our heart for the quote-unquote other, we fail to truly embrace the beauty of what Jesus has accomplished for us in its fullness. That when God looks at us, he sees not the offense but the blood. And the more we immerse ourselves in that glorious truth, the more we will learn to see others through the Father's eyes. Which leads me to some of the personal implications of this facet of the cross. Make no mistake, this is not an exhaustive list my brain started malfunctioning about this point of trying to recreate some of these sermon notes, but I'll give you a few. Number one, in Christ, and this is really simple, in Christ, God is for us. Paul says it very simply, Romans 8, verse 31. If God is for us, who can be against us? That, it doesn't even require us to unpack the context of that verse. Simply put, according to the apostle Paul, God is for those who are in Christ. That we are not insolent opponents of God. We are not enemies of God. God has not only given us his peace, but himself. Which is an unwavering declaration that God is for you. What's the greatest, most satisfying treasure in all of the universe? I'll give you the answer. It's God. And he's given you himself. Which means he's given you the greatest, most satisfying treasure in all of the universe. His face is not turned away from you, but rather toward you with the light of reconcilement shining as we'll sing about in just a moment. And I hope that picture as we sing that helps to capture the love of God for you. The friendship that has been established by way of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Which leads me to a, a second personal implication. Because God is for us, we can come to him. I know that sounds really simple, but how often do we forget that? That we can approach him confidently in prayer, knowing that he loves us and that he is for us. That he won't reject us as we approach his throne of grace. 
that we can cry out for his help in time of need. We can ask for the peace of God that comes in knowing the God of peace, you might say. And then thirdly, as people reconciled by the blood of Jesus, we must repent of the otherness in our hearts. And I would say otherness comes in all kinds of shapes and sizes. I felt it yesterday in my yard. I felt this sort of hostility rising up in my heart because my neighbor's idea of a well-manicured lawn was not the same as mine. And, and, and I'm more on the lack side of that, which meant it put me to work in a way that I did not want to get to work yesterday on my daughter's birthday in order to, to make sure that that relationship was good. That, that's an otherness in my heart. I found myself coming before the Lord and saying, God, help me because I've established this line in the sand and put this person on the other side of it with this sort of hostility, this rising up within me. Otherness can be directed toward people who don't think like us people who don't dress like us, people who don't parent like us, and on and on and on and on we could go. And then there are the, the more endemic forms of otherness like racism and ethnocentrism. I mean, if we're honest, we all probably have some degree of otherness in our hearts that we need to repent of. And, and here's the deal. Racism, ethnocentrism, all those various forms of otherness are not merely social issues. They're gospel issues according to this doctrine of reconciliation. That it is counterintuitive to the very gospel message that we proclaim as ambassadors of Jesus Christ to erect dividing walls of hostility that Jesus shed his blood to break down. That in Christ we've been reconciled into an unbelievably diverse forever family. It's called the church and it's beautiful. We, we have the indwelling spirit of God who empowers us to love God in restoration as a friend, and to love others, including those who are very different from us. Putting on display the power of God for salvation, by the way, declaring the beauty of unity in diversity with the gospel as the, the, the sole glue holding it all together. Which is why people would walk into a living room for the first time exploring a community group, and they could really ask the question, apart from Jesus, would this group exist? And the answer, for the most part, is probably, I don't think so. So praise be to God in Christ for creating this, which only the gospel can create. You can probably easily come up with a dozen more things to add to the list of personal implications. I've probably got some on a crash computer somewhere. Maybe I'll post those on Facebook as additional thoughts. But as I mentioned throughout this series, each and every one of these facets is going to hit us differently throughout the summer for the past several weeks now, we've talked about how the cross deals with guilt, how the cross deals with fear and shame and powerlessness and now hostility. If none of those things are the things you struggle with most, I would say hang in there. We've still got a few weeks to go in this series. Your, your facet of the cross is coming soon. In the meantime, as I've said every single week of this series, each of these facets of the cross has both communal and missional value for each and every one of us. That communally, whether or not you struggle with issues having to do with reconciliation, there are brothers and sisters around you in this very space right now who do. This is the facet of the cross that speaks most readily to their hearts. And by you and I better understanding this doctrine and how it impacts people's lives, God can use you and me to breathe hope and life into the lives of of other followers of Jesus Christ. And so as I've asked these kind of questions every week thus far, let me just ask, has God brought any brothers or sisters into your life who struggle with feeling like God is always against them? 
You know any professing Christians who deal with that? Viewing, uh, feeling like God views them as some sort of insolent opponent rather than a reconciled friend? What, what about those who struggle to believe that they can approach God confidently? Be it issues of, of fear and trepidation or, or even the question of whether he cares to listen or even engage in that conversation? What about those who have erected or are erecting walls of hostility with others, toward others? Walls that Jesus shed his blood to break down. We can move toward those brothers and sisters with this facet of the cross known as reconciliation, reminding them that in Christ, the the wall of hostility between them and God has been broken, calling them to a ministry of reconciliation that's consistent with this message that we profess to believe. Lastly, what about the missional aspect of this facet of the cross? How can we, how can we use the, the beautiful facet of reconciliation to evangelize? Well, as I said just a moment ago, the beauty of this facet of the cross is that we can both declare it with our lips and display it with our lives. We can tell enemies of God that they can know God as a friend. We have a peace treaty to offer, that they can not only know the peace of God, but the God of peace through the shed blood of Jesus not by trying to earn his friendship, but by coming to him with nothing more than their sin in the empty hands of faith, receiving the gift of reconciliation. We can proclaim the beauty of of a gift that can only be received. And it's ultimately the gift of God himself. And, as I said before, we can put this very facet of the cross on display with our very own lives. Coming back to Thursday, I mentioned we celebrated our our 10-year anniversary as a couple, and one of the things that has impacted me as it pertains to my understanding of marriage more than any other resource that I've ever engaged is John Piper's book, This Momentary Marriage, where he essentially establishes as a thesis statement that the ultimate goal of marriage is to glorify God by putting on display the undying, covenant-keeping love that Christ Jesus has for the church. And so that's the ultimate purpose of marriage. The, the, the bond, the covenant between a husband and a wife puts on display the covenant-keeping love that Jesus Christ has for his church, and thus marriage is a display of the gospel. In the same way that marriage is the shadow of a greater reality, reconciliation with other image bearers is an evangelistic visual of what reconciliation with God is like. And, and what that means is that it's, it's actually missional to pursue reconciliation with the people with whom we're estranged. That, that's a missional thing to do. It's missional to repent of otherness in our hearts. The dividing walls of hostility that we've erected that Jesus shed his blood to break down, that that actually puts the gospel on display and, and comes alongside with consistency that declaration of a peace treaty that we proclaim with our lips. That's all I have for you this morning. That's the grace of God on a Thursday, bringing things together to make sense of a facet of the cross in the midst of absolute chaos, and I hope it compels you. And I hope that you continue to come back week after week to explore further facets of the cross. Next week, it'll be illumination as we talk about Jesus solving our darkness problem and bringing light into our lives and and lighting our path and enlightening us as we move forward through the Christian life. And then we'll get into the doctrine of victory. Jesus as the victory over Satan and demons 
our great conquering king. And then we'll get into the doctrine of adoption as we talk about what it means to be brought in as orphans diving in the dumpsters of depravity, given a family and a father and a big brother, Jesus. It's going to be sweet for weeks to come as we just keep spinning the jewel and seeing the uniqueness of each and every one of these facets and see that they're all held together by the blood of Jesus Christ. In a moment, we're going to continue to worship in a number of ways. Uh, As I say every week, we're going to worship through song. And so we're going to sing the doctrine of reconciliation together as the church. Um, We're going to sing that song that I mentioned uh, just a few moments ago about God turning his face and shining upon us with the light of reconcilement. And I hope that your heart's moved as you sing those words, acknowledging that God is not your enemy, but your dear friend because of what Jesus has accomplished for you. There will be people in the back to pray with and for you if you, if you want prayer, whether it be issues that uh, you find yourself struggling with as it pertains to your relationship with God in this piece of reconciliation, or whether there, there is a, an existing hostility that exists between you and others that, that must be dealt with that you want to bring to the feet of Jesus and ask for power and help to, to move toward with the light of reconcilement. And lastly, we'll worship through the receiving of communion. There are two tables here and one in the back. We take the bread here, representing the broken body of Jesus, and we dip it in the cup, representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. As you prepare to come, just sit for a moment and soak in the beautiful reality that God has done everything necessary through the shed blood of his son to reconcile you to himself in restored friendship and peace. And that is yours forever.